Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. Welcome to the Stages podcast. I'm Peter Ayers, and my guest today is Jonathan Mill. Jono is a gregarious presence who guarantees good work and a giggle. His career as an actor has been paralleled with a committed support of his fellow performers through extensive work with the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Jonathan served four terms as the Federal Vice President of Actors' Equity and for many years has represented Australian performers on numerous boards nationally and internationally. He was also pivotal in establishing the Australian AIDS fundraising body, Oz Showbiz Cares, an organisation that produced the annual Hats Off concerts, which featured an extensive list of entertainers for over 20 years. Jonathan has a great passion for many things. These include the craft of acting, arts advocacy, educating a new generation of performers and the Sydney Swans. Always enlightening and good for a laugh, here's my effusive chat with Jonathan Mill. I know, it's all new. There's all new. There's an immersion thing. I noticed that today when I was teaching, all these new options popped up in Zoom. And you can blur the background, but, um, you know, uh, surely the Vaseline should be on the lens in the foreground. Uh, the Vaseline is strongly on the lens. I've got light pumping into my face, which gets rid of most of the wrinkles and bags and a, and a soft light behind me. I've got a key light just underneath me. I've learned all these things about Zoom and how you can do your own lighting. I learned it all from Elena Dietrich. I was going to say you're the Marlena Dietrich of uh, of Zoom. Uh, speaking of I old legends, so. speaking of old <laughs> legends, um, can you expand on the, the Shelley Winters story for me? I mean, you you abruptly <laughs> emailed me your your CV with a little comment. <laughs> Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters had won two Oscars, and she was invited to audition for an upcoming uh, role, and some little assistant at the casting director said, oh, can you please bring your photo and resume? And she walked in with her two Oscars, put the first one down and said, there's my photo, put the next one out and said, and there's my fucking resume. (laughs) You've got to uh, admire gumption like that, don't you? Yes. Yeah, and fair enough. And fair enough, how dare you not know who Shelley Winters is? Haven't you seen the Poseidon Adventure? <laughs> um, yes, Mrs. Uh, what's her name? That that phenomenal oh, swim, yes. and then she the great swimmer, the, the, oh, heart attack. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> I, I, having had one, I, I, I can say she did a very good job. Yeah. And, I, how's oh, everything? I are you that. Yeah. Are you tickety boo now? I'm. I am tickety boo. Let me tell you. Yes. No, I'm good. Well, I, I think I'm good. I can't do. I can't go and see my. I can't go and have my annual checkup because of lockdown. But you know, that's okay. Did Did you it's, have any idea? Did you have any idea that that might be um, looming? Were you warned in any way, or did um, it just happen? Look, I I had found out ten years ago. Ten years ago, right now, I'd found out that I was born with a compromised vascular system and that there might be issues. And those issues are kind of related to veins and arteries collapsing, which is really good fun when that happens. And 10 years ago, I had um, bypasses in both my legs. So because the arteries had failed, and so they switched them for superficial veins. And now my veins have become my arteries and my legs. And that was that was one little adventure. So I thought there might be something. I was always worried it was going to be a stroke, but it um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but it was, the, wood, it was the artery coming out of my heart that, ex- yeah, yeah, that decided to explode. Is it a painful experience? But, you know, that, that moment it explodes? No, th- this is the, yeah, so that this is the really, this is the scary thing. It's kind of a bit weird. Um, it happens to most people in their sleep. So they just, never wake up. Um, it's not painful. It's not the kind of clutching your heart or clutching your arm that happens in a heart attack. It's it's kind of, it was, I, I had luckily, fortunately enough, I'd had another vascular issue when I was a teenager and my throat had pretty much exploded. And so I was hemorrhaging from my throat and I remember to cauterize it, they got a cotton, um, wad, a wad of cotton and put pure adrenaline on it, strapped me down and put that on my throat and then on the inside. And I remember it was like an electric shock of the adrenaline going through me. And so when my aortic dissection occurred, that was kind of what happened. I had this huge electric shock ran through my body, but it wasn't painful. So I was kind of, hmm, that was weird. And then I did have the foresight to ring triple O, which was a good decision. If in doubt, just give them a call. Yeah. And so you're fighting they, fit they, now, right. which is good to hear. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. I've just I've just started high uh, blood pressure medication. Ah, yes. <laughs> don't, you, don't you love that? That's another sign of age. Oh my goodness! I think I'm on about ten or eleven medications. Yes, and most of them are for blood pressure because, you know, and it's my parents' fault. It's um, hereditary. So, you know, um, but yeah, so the blood pressure. But my problem is that I, everything I enjoy in life is high octane. It's, it gets your blood pressure rising. I love that. They're like, relax. I go, I can't relax. That's not me. Yes, I, I can imagine what you must be like at a Swanies game. <laughs> people people come and they think they know me and they think they like me and then they go to the football with me and they're just shocked. They're genuinely shocked for the yes. <laughs> but you know, that's it's an outlet for me. It it is absolutely my religion. It is absolutely my religion and I treat it in that way. The grounds are the sacred places, there are rituals, you know. 
it's uh, it's 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 cathartic. I love it. <laughs> I'm looking at my signed Guernsey by the team, which I got for my 40th birthday, which was 20 years ago now. But it's got some absolute legends there. Yes, Paul Kelly and Adam Goods, and yes, those yes, they'll sign my Guernsey. That's you know, that'll be it. Your fandom is extreme. Even your your Instagram <laughs> handle is named after a Swannies player. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's a it's a connection with ancestry. It's kind of it. It takes me right back to where I came from. You um, are you zoomed out? Yes. How are you coping with COVID? It seems that we live our lives uh, on Zoom. Look, out. I'm yes, I do. I think. Last week, I had 32 hours on Zoom teaching, and that was that was a big that was a big week. I think I'm only up to about 20 this week. So, um, yeah, look, it's not ideal. It certainly isn't ideal. It's but as I've said, it will be better than going back into the classroom with masks on. I don't mm. know how I can teach voice and accent if I'm wearing a mask and the students are wearing masks, you know, I just don't know how that's going to work. So the alternative, I actually would prefer is to be on Zoom than be back in the classroom with masks on. So we'll just wait and see. It's it's so funny at the beginning of the year, I was, I was really just enjoying the fact that Sydney was the place to be in the world. It was the most exciting place. We had cabaret open again. We had theater we had everything was booming and the rest of the world was shut down and uh, but i said this could all stop tomorrow this could all go away tomorrow and it did tell me about um the production experience in relation to covid because you directed a couple of student productions last year i'm thinking of don's party and a midsummer night's dream how did covid impact your your rehearsal and, and preparation experience it was <laughs> look i've got to say it was it was ludicrous so two plays which are basically about sex and people groping <laughs> each other and rolling over each other and and you know very very funny because of it they'll have to social distance nobody could get within a meter and a half so it was very inventive it was a very inventive way of doing it i'm really pleased i went to, back to my peen and bausch roots and there was a lot of Pina Bausch type movement, choreography around people. I'm kind of imagining what it might be like to seduce somebody from a meter and a half away. <laughs> so it was it was it was a challenge, but um, the students were up to it. And um, yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do it often, but you know it was it was a way of getting things on. So you, you had to do it. And we had to comply. The police came in twice to just kind of check on everything as they should have. Um, and so, uh, you know, we didn't take any shortcuts. Of course, the moment they stopped rehearsing, you'd turn around and they're all lying on top of each other. Um, and they'd be going, no, you can't do that. You still have to separate us. Rules are rules. <laughs> rules are rules. Yes. And playing to an audience of masked faces, which you've also done yeah. during the Sarzek epidemic. Tell me what it's like being a performer on stage, playing to uh, a masked. It's the strangest. Audience. It's the strangest thing. So we were in Singapore at the Durian, at the big Durian, the, the beautiful um, Esplanades theatres there, 
and it's huge. It's like, you know, 800, 1,000 people, if not more, and they're all wearing masks. And so you look out, you, all you can see is a sea of white masks and laughter like this. <laughs> so everyone kind of laughing or gasping behind their mask. But it was also, it was sold out in advance of us arriving there in, in advance of SARS, so they weren't going to not come. So um, it, it's, it's a strange thing. It was also strange anyway because we were doing Oliver um in singapore and, and singapore is um you know they love dickens so they knew the story really well they loved the show but they had different heroes so in the australian when we were doing it in australia it's like the artful dodger and nancy are like the they're the, the they're the ones that the audience relates to no they didn't like them at all they no. were naughty and so they loved oliver so it was all about oliver and oliver escaping from things and they would be cheering and so it was really it was really interesting to see different audiences responding to the story in different ways yeah yeah i i, I gather that is uh, different cultures different reactions yeah. to to the stories and as you say they find their own heroes who they can relate to. yeah exactly at least they found somebody to cheer for <laughs> who were you playing I was, this was, I was so excited by Oliver. It's the only time I've been in the ensemble. I've never been in the ensemble for a show. Um, so it was the only time. So I just say, I played London. So I played like eight or nine different characters. I had three wigs, different hats, so many different costumes in Consider Yourself, which is the longest number in the history of musical theatre. It goes for 20 minutes, literally. The first time the Artful Dodger says, Consider Yourself, 20 minutes later, the number finishes. And so it was huge. I played three different characters just in that song. So it was like it was it was crazy and i had a quick change backstage um during the middle of the number into the one-man band that was my big bit so i was the one-man band in consider yourself and the juggler in who will buy so all those funny little skills that you pick up on the way you know you go all right yes we need a one-man band who can juggle that's me i, I can, can do that, that. <laughs> i can do that in the ensemble Mame, i in was never in the chorus I know. <laughs> yes, I love the principles, but I'm rotten to the core, you know. Uh, Jono, uh, you are a South Australian, aren't you? I certainly am. Yeah. Um, so, what, what was it like? So. What was it like growing up in Adelaide as a, a budding thespian? I, from from what my parents tell me. I was about four when I expressed an interest in being an actor, or as I called it, you know, playing dress-ups. Um, that's what I wanted to do. So uh, they kind of desperately looked around for something to help me. And really the only thing that was available in Ross Trevor, where I grew up, was after-school ballet classes. So I started them when I was five years old. I started doing ballet and, and kind of... Um, had this accidental development and career as a dancer, which was really kind of surprising to me. It wasn't something I wanted, I wasn't pursuing the dance, but it was the only way I could play dress-ups. You know, there was kind of no other way to do it. And that kind of, that led to 16 years at the bar. So I did classical ballet for 16 years and I did tap and contemporary 
and national dancing, as it was called, which was all different sort of folkloric numbers. And that led to a little bit of television and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But yeah, and then I was finally able to break away from the ballet and, and do what I really wanted to do, which was act. And that kind of started, I guess, when I was about 14 or 15 with youth theatre. And I would go into the city and do youth theatre on Saturday mornings. Actually, I'd do ballet first. I'd go and do ballet classes and then do youth theatre. And then I'd go to the footy after that. <laughs> <laughs> An all-rounder. An all-rounder. It all goes back to when I was very young. Was there much of a uh, dramatic experience at school? We you able to do school productions and uh, or oh, study dramas? Oh, Lord, yes. So I went to, I, I, when I finally got to the school that I wanted to get to, which was called Moriata, Moriata High School, it was really, it was a performing arts high school before there was performing arts high schools. It was, what happened in Adelaide in the 70s, when, when, under Don Dunstan, he created these different kind of zones and areas so in our area, there was Campbelltown, which was a dance school. So that was concentrating on dance. But I was lucky enough to go to Moriata, which was the drama school. So that really concentrated on drama. The next one over was Marriottville, and that was the music high school. And then there was another one, which was sports. But, you know, who was no one was interested in that. Well, I'm sure some people were. Um, so I lucked out and went to the drama school. And we did our endless, endless productions. Um, there was a concert band, an orchestra, an entertainment group. So there was Meg, which is the Moriata Entertainment Group, where we learned all these sorts of variety routines and went out and tortured senior citizens with them. Um, but it was it was huge and it was a huge learning experience where we learned all these different things. We had plays, we had musicals, we had dance drama, we had this stuff constantly going on. And it got to the point that our school musicals kind of became these big events, like they were in real theatres and people who weren't just parents came to see them. Critics came and saw them. And I think there was one year, one of our high school musicals was like in the top 10 shows in Adelaide that year. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Time well, out to not miss. Could that happen? Yes, yes. <laughs> Must see. Jonathan Miller's Laser Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I gather you were a bit of an extrovert then as a child. Um, yeah, I was. Is that how you describe was, yourself? Oh, look, I, I describe myself. I remember I was an actor manager by seven. I would put on these, <laughs> I used to put on um, puppet shows on our back veranda. And and so all the kids, I mean, there were so many kids where I grew up. There was just like dozens and dozens of kids in our street. And um, they would all come and watch the puppet shows and they were really popular. Like the kids liked them. I'm not, I'm not just being delusional. And then they'd be like, oh, can I be in it too? Can I be in it? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I'd be like, yes, you can make the cordial. Yes, you can, you know, pull the curtain up. Um, you know, you can do all those things. And at one point, I think there were so many people involved in it. There was no audience because all the kids, all the kids in the wanted to be in it. And have fun. So, yeah, I was ruling the roost in Ross Trevor when I was like seven or eight, just kind of running things and putting things on. And yeah, were you an actor uh, that was working with Gail Edwards? I way? certainly was. So I had I had ten years with Gail. Right. Um, so she started at Moriata as a drama teacher, and so I was like, oh, this is interesting. That's quite good. She's, she, yeah, she, 
it's got something it's got something and so she started directing the musicals and directing all of these things and so i then i went to new york so i went to new york when i was 17 as an exchange student and that was that was obviously a huge experience being in new york city when i was 17. um i think the day i was the day i arrived i said i must go to broadway and they're like it's tuesday morning at 11 a.m i mean doesn't matter <laughs> and i'm i'm wandering the streets telling these poor americans i was living with all the different shows that had been in the different theaters and they're like oh no what have we got here <laughs> and then the second night i was there they, they, they said, we know some theater people. We know some theater people. The second night I was there, they invited someone who worked in the theater around for dinner. And I'm chatting away with this guy called Joe. And I'm like, yeah. And he says, yeah, I, I work in the theater. I've, I've done a few things. And I'm like, oh, what do you do? And he said, oh, I produce and direct. And I'm like, what have you done? Oh, hair. Yeah, I've heard of that. A chorus line. Really? It was Joe Papp. Oh, <laughs> it was wow. Joseph Papp. From, from the, the public, public theater. theater. So I'm having dinner with him from the public theater. I'm having dinner with him as a 17-year-old on my second night. Then the next night I've got house seats to a chorus line. Um, and it was, yeah, it was an amazing experience. So I, that was New York for a year. Then I came back to Adelaide and um, a severe case of depression, leaving New York where I was, you know, the center of the universe, um, back to Adelaide where I was unemployed. I'd got into law at Adelaide University and I was, and I had deferred, but I actually had to defer for two years because I wanted to do law and Mandarin. I had a career trajectory that was going to end up as Kevin Rudd. You know, I, I absolutely wanted to study law. I wanted to study Mandarin. I wanted to become a diplomat. I wanted to become a staffer in the Labour Party. That was my, that was where I was heading until I went to New York and I went, I'm going to be an actor. And so I came back, dropped out of uni, didn't do any of that, you know. Um, and Gail Edwards had set up this company with people that had been to Mariana High, but had graduated and were kind of, what can we do in between? And she set up this amazing youth dance theatre company called Energy Connection. It was the early 80s. Um, <laughs> and we and we, we worked for three years putting on shows, writing shows. We had a, a residency at Theatre 62 in Adelaide, which some people will know, a beautiful little theatre in Theberton. Um, we put on shows at the Festival Theatre and 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 we, we got to the point where we were got enough funding that we could pay ourselves. So we were able to pay ourselves, which meant we could join equity, which was really exciting because we couldn't do that before then because we didn't have a wage. We were living on our fortnightly government arts grants. That was... Um, the doll and um so then 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 i applied for nida i got in gail was at night so i had three years of gail at nida <laughs> so a, a lot of lot of probably 10 years all up working with gail which was incredibly formative and really important to me and and so much of the way i teach so much of the way i direct comes directly from her methods and and what she taught us did you enjoy drama school um, <laughs> interesting question. <laughs> some people uh, do, look, some people don't. Uh, I think, no, it was a really tumultuous time. We had a different head of acting each year. There was a lot of politics going on. There was a lot of, we missed out on a lot of things because 
of what was happening as NIDA was transitioning to the new building. So a lot of resources were taken away from the students that were there, putting into what was going to be that, you know, that beautiful place on um, Anzac Parade. So, you know, um, I enjoyed the teaching. I enjoyed learning. Some of the teachers were extraordinary and have absolutely shaped, you know, I think of Keith Bain to have been taught by Keith Bain for three years is just the, the greatest blessing. And for someone who came from a physical uh, dance background, the way that Keith taught, I just responded to so immediately and went, yes. And, and Keith would do these incredible things where you'd be struggling with a character and you couldn't quite work it out. And you'd be just walking across the quadrangle and Keith would walk past and go, I think it's the ears. It might be the ears, darling. Think about the ears. And you go, oh my God, I just found the character. And it was like, it was extraordinary. So it was an amazing time. Um, I just, I think it was difficult for everyone who was there at that time. What was the first gig you scored out of NIDA? Do you remember your first professional? Out of, well, this is, this is a good story. This is a good story. <laughs> so I should not have a career. I should just should not have a career. I should never have worked. The very first job I scored out of acting school was full-time working at Actors' Equity. So wow. I went straight from the Friday, the Friday afternoon when we finished at night and Monday morning, I was in an office uh, with people ringing me up, telling me that they'd just been sacked and what could I do about it? And I said, and I was truthful and said, I have no idea, but it must be something. Let's, where are you? I'll come down to the opera house and have a chat. So I went straight from um, acting school to uh, being the federal theatre organiser for Actors' Equity, which was basically responsible for everybody working in live theatre in Australia. Um, what was equity thinking? <laughs> what was I thinking? How do you get a job like and that? Is that because of your your um, legal background? I mean, you, you started to study law? Um, yeah, so I, 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 I think I got it because I had a couple of really knockout referees because i was like who do i know and i said oh nick bolkus and peter duncan nick bolkus was the federal minister for immigration and peter duncan was the federal attorney general and they rang them up and they're like oh yeah we know jonathan he's great <laughs> so it was it was probably just labor party connections and they went oh this guy must know everybody um and i you know um and it was fantastic it was an amazing experience I assumed I would never work as an actor again, um, but miraculously, I did. I kind of, you know, I was there for 18 months. The wonderful Kevin Palmer, who, because in that job, you're dealing with agents every day. Like seriously, you would talk to pretty much every agent every day, talking about contracts, you know, all sorts of things. And so I'd known Kevin Palmer before when he was there in Adelaide with Nick Enright. And so I had known him when I was a kid and I had been talking with Nick and uh, with um, Kevin and he rang me up one day and said, I believe you're thinking of becoming an actor again. I went, yeah, I, th I think, you know, I'll give it a try. And he went, well, I'd love to represent you. So I was like, yay, I've got an agent, might as well try. And look, to my amazement, um, I worked. To my amazement, um, people kind of went, okay, um, he'll just become the equity deputy on every show, which, of course, is what happened. Um, Why were so you surprised I, I, that you were, were offered work? 
Why was that a surprise to you? I guess you- because I guess I. Um, I guess because in that role, you've got to be quite ferocious. You've got to be quite, you know, saying, no, this is what it says. This is what you have to do. And if you don't agree, we'll take you to court. Hmm. And we would. And equity takes people to the Industrial Relations Commission. And so you'd be fronting up with them, presenting evidence, and they've got their lawyers in there. And you're like, they're never going to employ me again. But then I realised, of course, in theatre that the producers don't have a lot of say. It, res- it is mostly up to the directors. And so the directors are like, no, all right, this guy's good. Let's book him. And so, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm always remembered of what Annie Phelan said, the wonderful Annie Phelan, where, and of course she was a famous equity head. That's what we call ourselves, you know, equity activist. And she said, I would never want to work for somebody who wouldn't want to work for me, with me because I'm an equity activist. And I guess maybe there were a couple of dodgy brothers who didn't employ me, but who wouldn't want? I wouldn't want to work for him anyway. I've worked for enough actual dodgy brothers, <laughs> and I think certainly that experience, my experience beforehand, politics, law, go into equity, certainly helped me and helped other people when I was when I was equity deputy on shows. To go, you know, it's it's not about ranting and raving and. It's about going, well, okay, this is what the agreement says. This is what the award says. Let's let's talk about this. And I think I always had a philosophy as a deputy to, I would talk to management every day. As soon as I turn up, I pop my head and say, anything I need to know? Good. Let's just, let's give, you know, all right, something I think you should know. People are starting to chat about this or chat about that. So it's about not waiting till there's a major issue deal with it in advance everyone's doing everyone wants to do the same thing everyone wants to just put shows on mm. you know and there's pressure on everyone doing that so yeah i've been pleasantly surprised by the fact that i've you know worked were you a political animal as a kid where, where does that come from but were, were your parents particularly political or i look um, they were, but they kind of didn't really push that on us. They were incredibly generous and incredibly open and independent. And whichever way any of us wanted to go politically or religiously, they really didn't voice that on us, which was really wonderful. I think there was an early, um, there was a kind of early experience around dams or something. I kind of vaguely remember that. Certainly the Vietnam War was going on when I was a kid and I was aware of that. I had two uncles that were fighting in Vietnam and I knew that that wasn't good and I didn't support that and I didn't want them to go. But I I suppose the main thing for so many people of my age was the dismissal when when Whitman was sacked. I I was in South Australia, so my prime minister was Gough Whitman and my um, premier was Don Dunstan, these two erudite, urban, cultured men. That's what I thought the Labour Party was. <laughs> I, I was in for a shock. Um, but that's what I thought it was. And I thought that when Whitlam was dismissed, I just thought that was that was wrong and I should do something about it. I've always always been someone who go, well, there must be something you could do. All right, I'll join the Labour Party. I will, you know, I'll be involved in this. I'll go on a, a rally. I'll get I'll sign a petition. It's always kind of something to do. Otherwise they just get too frustrated. Well, you served four terms as the Federal Vice President of Actors' Equity or Media Entertainment and Actors' Alliance. Um, what were some of those 
wins which you're, you're quite proud of that in your your time when you, when you were there? What were were some of the things that uh, you made headway with? I th yeah, um, there's so many things. I think I, a couple of things. The first the, the first really big one was for someone who had failed maths at high school. I was able to in the middle of the night, get a calculator and a pencil and work out a 4% cost to industry for performers in live theatre. And we were able to get the largest increase in the history of the Australian Union movement for performers working in theatre. That was an enormous achievement where we were able to get the rate of pay for performers in theatre up to something which was reasonable literally when when i joined the union the rate of pay for actors in theater was below the poverty line it was you know it was ridiculously low so um you know even if when you did get a job you're like i'm still poor i'm yeah. still poor and so i think that was a huge achievement i think there were some ramifications around that i think there were some small companies some regional companies that then weren't able to pay it because their communities didn't rally around and get funding from the government to protect those companies and and that i think that's an enormous shame um but i completely blame i blame the politicians for who represent those regional areas for not standing up for the people in those areas and not creating those jobs. But, you know, I, I, I love the fact that the equity minimum for theatre now is a decent wage. It's a living wage. Um, the other kind of second really big thing that I'm, I'm incredibly proud of, and it took a long time, it took years and years and years of research and negotiation, is the health and safety um, code for live theatre. And what we what we just and the stats tell the truth. Since that code has come in, we've had very very few fatalities in the theatre, and previous to that, we were averaging one a year, which I wow. think is just horrific. You know, mm. the, the people should not be going to work and not coming home, mm. and that was a reality in the theatre. It is. It's still a very dangerous place. It's literally. It's a construction site at night yeah. and we're all walking around in that half light then into complete blackout we've got things that fall on us things that open up and we can fall into falling is the greatest danger for performers and crew in a theater and i think that the work that the whole industry did the whole industry did in coming up with a health and safety code um, is something i'm enormously proud of because it saved lives literally and i think the work that is being done now um, in mental health for performers and crew is really vital and really important and i think obviously COVID and the lockdown and these things is just shows why it's so important so i'm really pleased with that and i, I if i can keep banging on about myself for a little minute please i please. think you, that you are the one man um, band <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not at equity it's not a one-man band no only it's only in oliver <laughs> yes only in oliver <laughs> Only in Oliver. Um, I'm enormously uh, proud of what's happened in terms of increased opportunities for people of diversity. That was something that I was a one-man band for many years at Equity, banging, banging, banging away at it, and kind of not being met with with much um, 
support, but just stick to it. Just keep banging those cymbals on your head and <laughs> rattling those bells around your ankles. And eventually people kind of went, oh, okay, maybe we should do something about that. And I just love it. Every time I, I see someone of diversity on stage or they pop up on in a TV ad, I'm just like, I'm cheering. I'm so happy. I feel so proud of what we've been able to achieve because that absolutely was driven by equity and the Equity Diversity Committee. So when did Actors' Equity become MIA, the uh, Media so, Entertainment and Arts yeah. Alliance? So obviously they, they merged with other unions. Yeah, so in 1992 was the big, it was 92, 1991, something like that. So that was the big merger. That was the three big unions, the Australian Journalists Association, the Journos, Actors' Equity, and the Australian Theatrical and Amusement Employees Association, which is crew in front of house. So those three unions came together. Um, the musicians didn't. It's taken a long time for the musicians to come on board because that's up to them and their, their members to do it. Pretty much all the musicians are with us now in Musicians Australia. So, yeah, and there's been some small and little changes ever since. But it's, it's really about um, reducing costs so that you're sharing resources and sharing, you know, it was, it was, I remember it being put to us at the time that why do we have three photocopiers? We can save money if there's only one, you know. Um, and I think, I think um, certainly the, the, um, the amalgamation of the uh, technicians and crew and equity is something but that's been really important so that we can't be played off against each other. Um, I think that's really important because, you know, my experience when I'm going to work, they're the people I'm working with. They're right next to me. A stage manager was there from day one in the theatre and is, is there hours after we've left to go to the party at, on closing night. You know, those people are, are absolutely um, our colleagues and comrades that we're working with and, and for us all to be represented by the same union, I think, is is absolutely sensible. Yeah. There's, there's high visual representation now. You seem to read in, in almost every bio, um, a proud member yes. of equity since, which is, is fantastic. Yeah. Um, what do you say to those performers who perhaps think that, oh, it's just a waste of money and they don't do anything? How do you? Um, uh, <laughs> well, this is good. Well, I could give them a shopping list of all the thing, all the ways in which equity benefits. But what I do is say, what do you want equity to do? What do you What do you want? And then you can go. Well, we do that, and this is how we do it. So it's really about saying what's important to them. I think that if, in almost every case, people don't understand how equity impacts on their lives, how equity creates jobs, how equity makes sure that, you know, there is work available. Um, I just think, you know, if, if it's something that's a third party, it's kind of distant from you, then yeah, what is it? If it, all it is, is, a, you know, I pay this amount of money every year. And, you know, the money is always hard. The money is difficult for because we know the statistics, you know. 25 years ago, performers earned $12,000 a year. 25 years later, they're still earning on average $12,000 a year. Wow, it's, you know, it's just appalling. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's just because there is, there's not enough work opportunities. So I don't think people understand that the majority, the most of the work that equity is doing is creating jobs. 
and you create jobs by lobbying government, all tiers of government, but not just around direct funding. How can we get a bit here? Can we, you know, what else can we do? Can we get the producers offset, which means they could shoot overseas production here and pay lesser tax rates? And there's so many different ways in which you can do it. Australian content, of course, on our screens, on our small screens, you know, there has to be a certain percentage of Australian content and that creates jobs. And the big campaign now is to move that into the streaming services. So free-to-air television has to do it. Then, okay, well, why shouldn't the streamers do it? So that all of these new productions, all of these new things that are happening, they should have Australian content, quotas on them so that we can tell our own stories. We know they're popular. We know the audiences like them and watch them, but they don't make as much money as buying cheap product from overseas. Jono, I think I, I met you about 25 years ago in uh, a, a fundraising arm of, of equity called Ozshowbiz Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about that organisation because uh, it, it's still going on uh, 25 years later. Um, how did that all begin? So, look, it all began. There's a wonderful, wonderful woman called Tia Jordan. Tia and I had just done four, four and a half years together in West Side Story. That's the great show of my life. <laughs> it was like, that took up most of the 90s. And we had just been cast together in Cabaret. So the GFO production of Cabaret, which was at the Footbridge Theatre, which was another great highlight of my life. It was an amazing experience. Richard Werrett directed. Um, playing Richard Werrett directed, Ross Coleman, um, was the choreographer, Roger Kirk did the costumes, it was just, Brian Thompson did the set, it was like, you know, absolutely all the, all the, all the great luminaries. And I was, I remember that, it was one of my, it was the best ever audition experience. They were running late, and um, so they said, you know, we might, we could be another hour. So go and have a coffee. I went, no, I won't have a coffee. You know, the, there's a couch in the in the foyer there at the Footbridge Theatre, and the sun was shining on it. And I lay down on the couch and fell asleep. <laughs> and someone shook me awake and said, Jonathan, they're ready for you. And I woke up so refreshed, no nerves at all. And they said, okay. What? And I went, okay, this is what I'm playing. This is my plot. In the opening scene, I play Helga, then I will play Max, then I play the gorilla, then I play a drunk Nazi. And I just, because I knew the show backwards, I went through the plot. They're pissing themselves laughing. And then I proceeded <laughs> to do my plot. I did everything. <laughs> Brilliant. I did the whole show for them. And they were just, they were But Tia was in that as well. And Tia had had great personal tragedy around HIV and AIDS. She'd lost two brothers to AIDS and she she approached me during that and she said i've just got to do something i want to i want to do something let's you know put on a fundraiser and we'd done some fundraising and things uh, together at west side and and i went well okay there's this thing called broadway cares equity fights aids and there's a western cares equity fights aids they're like really really big like they're huge and they raise millions of dollars each year let's do that Let's start our own one. So um, we we held a, our first fundraiser at the Chamberlain Hotel opposite the, the Capitol. And I think there was like four or five shows on, so many shows on back in those days. And we went, you know, we just sent things. This is all before social media. I think we just faxed people. 
faxed them or sent up smoke signals or something. We'd let everyone know that on this Thursday night, there would be a fundraiser and we would have a band and some raffle tickets and, you know, and everyone would get together. And it was absolutely crowded. There were hundreds of people. Everybody came, musicians, performers, crew, front of house, and we raised three and a half thousand dollars. And we're like, oh, that was pretty good. That was pretty easy. Um, let's do it. And so we we then had a meeting, we called a meeting, which was in a room in the front of house at the Theatre Royal, and Les Mis was on at the time. and. Everyone kind of, a few people came together, probably about 10 or 12 of us sitting around going, maybe, you know, why don't we, why don't we do this? And there were some really wonderful people there. Mark Rowe, the beautiful Mark Rowe was there. And, and he was, he was as always as the great stage manager and production manager that he was. was like, okay, but how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? What are we going to do? Derek Wilding from Equity was there giving his legal advice on how to set things up and, and stuff. And I think it was Margie. Margie DeFerranti came up with the Oshobis Cares Equity Fights Aids because we didn't have a Broadway or a West End. We didn't have, we wanted it to be national. We wanted everyone to do it. She was like, I was Joe's cares then? No, let's do that. And it kind of started out of that. And then we had a concert at Lame and then we kept doing concerts and we've raised over a million dollars since then, just putting on shows and rattling buckets and having cake stalls and raffle tickets and, and stuff. And and it's interesting that you say because we are in the process of winding it up. Right. I, I made a commitment right at the beginning that we would be here as long as it, we were needed. So, you know, um, it's not what it was. It's still a terrible disease. It's still horrible. It still devastates communities, but it's it's not the emergency that it was when we set it up in the in the 90s. So um, this is also a call. If any of the new generation want to pick it up and run with it, we've got the templates, we've got everything there. But we, those of us who've been around in it for 25 years or so, I guess, we're just like, yeah, we, we don't have the energy to keep doing it. We don't. Um, we also, we're not in shows anymore. We're not in these long running shows where you have your days to yourselves and you can just <laughs> do stuff. So... Um, all the, all the, there's so many wonderful legends. Margie DeFerranti, James Lee, Treasure, Trevor Ashley, Joe Sussman, you know, Mel Robertson, all these, so many people. I don't want, I shouldn't have started naming because it's literally thousands of people have been involved. Yeah. And they so, all contributed to those, the, the it's, annual yeah, it's one of the great fundraiser, the annual fundraiser of Hats Off, which was a concert that yeah, went so, on for about 20 years. So we, we, we did. Yeah, so we, we did, Margie and I did, the Margie James and I did the, the big final one, Hats Off to Hats Off. We did this as the 20th year. We did that at, um, where was it? Some, the Lyric. Where, oh, at the Seymour Centre. <laughs> or at the Lyric. No, it was at the Lyric. That's right. No, it was the Lyric. I, don't I, host, so, I hosted it. <laughs> oh, you hosted it. I should have said Peter Rose. You know, it was on, um, on, the, on the set of Beautiful. Yeah, it was. It yeah, was. Yeah. So many hats off. I've been the executive producer of about 35 hats off around the country. I can't remember them all. Wow. All I remember is they were all marvellous and wonderful. And we it was the so first one money. at the footbridge. And I was the person always. The first one was at the footbridge. Right. It certainly was. With which Nick, that Nick amazing duet with Paul Capps, which Nick Kenwright absolutely hosted. 
that amazing duet between Paul Capsis and Thelma Houston. Do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Or she was in that town. Was the second one. Uh, yeah, she, she was, was in, in town, town for fame, fame, the musical. Yeah, for fame, mm. and they did American. I was like, oh, I like this shit. I like this concerts. <laughs> I would say this is. I would. I never. I never did. I was never involved in the casting because that is a nightmare. And I went. So long as there are. So long as there are drag queens, divas, and pretty boys singing ballads, I'm happy. That's that's hats <laughs> off. <laughs> Jono, do you have a, an opening night routine when you did have an opening night? Was there a, a ritual that you went through? Um, opening night cards. Right. I'd always make sure I went round and gave an opening night card and a favour, as Nick Enright would refer to them, opening night favours, a little thing. Um, I was, I've never been nervous on opening night so long as there is a preview. The first time there's an audience, that's when I'm nervous because that's when the final cast member joins. And the audience, once all audiences are the same after that. Yeah. You know, they're a bit slow on Friday nights and a bit slow on Thursday nights. Friday nights are good. They're tanked up. But, yeah, I've, I've never been nervous, nervous about opening nights. It's always the first time there's an audience. What's that going to be like? How are they going to respond? When, you know, are they going to laugh at me? Oh, yes, they did good. I got the first time. Once I got the first laugh, I'm fine. You had about four years, you signalled earlier, in, as Officer Krupke in West Side Story. I did. How, yeah. how do you manage repetition in long runs like that? Look, it's a, all I could say is I'm so happy it was West Side because I, would, I did have a ritual for every show then. I would go down, so I'd have my, because I, we I was in the first scene, so I'd have my full kit on and I have this belt, utility belt, which has got a gun and a, you know, baton and all this stuff hanging on handcuffs or the cop gear hanging off and i would push it right down on my hips um and do the krupke mumbo so krupke would do this big dance routine in the wings before every show because the <laughs> you know the overture is done bum bum Bum, 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 mumbo. So the, the orchestra. And and we had a 40-piece orchestra. You know, I see these shows that was like six people in the pit. Westside had a 40-piece orchestra. So they would be pumping out this extraordinary music. And as flat and as bored and as over it as I was, I would just let that music get into me. And I'd be like, yes, yes. Where else would you want to be? Seriously, yeah. where else would you want to be than, than working on a masterpiece? Better than putting the CD on. Oh, yes. <laughs> was that the Ian Judge production? It was the Ian Judge production. Okay, I'm, allowed yeah. to, I'm allowed to say what he was called. <laughs> to say universally, what was he? He was universally known as the Poison Dwarf, which is so not correct it was appalling well it was correct because he was but you know we're not allowed to use those sort of terms now but yeah i think he called himself that he was absolutely was very diminutive and he was a nasty piece of work oh wow. he was great he was a wonderful director but he was so rude to people and there was marie johnson as maria i guess and oh, we was had, it sean, we had, sean hinkston uh, yes, so the first up was Marina. Marina was the first uh, Maria. And then uh, Sean Higson. No, not Sean Higson. Sean, what was Sean's name? I can't remember. It's it was a Sean, wasn't ago. it? Sean McGuinness. Was it? Or something. Yeah, Sean He was from Broadway. Well, he was Sean wonderful. Hingston. He was adorable. Uh, 
Sean is a dancer. Is he? Sean, don't be offended. Yes. No, 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 no. No, it was. Sorry, Sean. I'm. You're in my head for some reason. Anyway, yes, it was a terrific yeah, production. Out. <laughs> and Miss O'Connor, of course. And it went for ages and ages. And, and we had Caroline, and then we had Kelly Abbey, and then we had um, Leonie Page, and then we had Caroline again, and then we had Sharon Millerchip. We had a lot of it. It went on for a long time. It went for four and a half years, seven different productions, seven different opening nights, but only two Marias, Marina Pryor and Mary Johnson. I think we had... Three Tonys. Yeah. But Tony, I think Tony, to you, Jordan. Tony, t- don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, I think Tia, Jordan, Eden, Gaha, and I were the only three to do the whole the whole, three, whole seven seasons. Hmm. Um, in, in this business, there, there can be a lot of rejection. Auditions, lots of auditions, um, and uh, generally a lot of no's. What's your advice to young performers who, you know, will experience that? How do they how do they remain resilient? Uh, uh, look, this is something I've learned. The moment they say thank you, and your audition is over, I literally forget about it. I forget that it ever happened. Because if you get if you get connected to getting a job and getting a job is um, the, the reward, getting a job can't be uh, the indicator that you did a good job. Getting the job yeah. is just luck of the draw. You yeah. know, on that day, you were better than that other person or you were the right height. You know, I, I've had some catastrophic <laughs> experiences. There was a Particular Disney show, which will go on, which will not go named, but I was literally told from the beginning of that process, "Don't worry, it's yours. You're perfect for it. Don't even we, you know, literally we're just getting you in to to see how you'd work with other people." And I would just go back and I'd do another, do the number with another person and another person, but it was literally just, you know. It's going to be yours. We're not even looking for anyone else. And then the Americans arrived. And the Americans took one look at me and went, he's too tall. Oh. And they were like, I got a lovely bunch of flowers and Disney have been very kind to me since. <laughs> Looked after me. But it was it was, it was was really the, it was kind of the, the fault of the production that they hadn't kind of, you know, considered other people. And there was kind of mad scramble to go, oh, who can it be? So it's, I look, you know, I, you, I don't believe it's going to happen until not even not even waiting for the contract or, you know, I've, I've had contracts broken by employers, you know, where they go, oh, sorry, we actually got the person we wanted. So uh, the job's not yours. And that's, that's when it was to have some equity training going, okay, fine. This is how much you owe me and you will pay. So believe it when the overture starts on opening night. But yeah, the, yeah, believe it, believe it, believe it when the curtain comes down and it hasn't stopped on opening night. I've been in shows where it might have happened. Also, how much was this show in the black when it started? And how many creditors did you have to push away from stage door? Brilliant. Have you got a favourite part of a theatre? Yeah, the dressing room, the wings, the stage door, 
center oh, stage. The wings, the wings, the wings, the wings. Uh, absolutely. I remember when I did my first ballet concert when I was like six or seven or something. maybe I was seven. Um, and we were, it was in a real theatre. It was in the Arts Theatre in Angus Street in Adelaide, which is a beautiful little theatre. And it was my first time backstage and it was that half light and it was a bit dusty and that, you know, this, this strange space. And there was a rock. There was a painted rock, which was a flat, but it looked like it was a real rock and it had a fisherman's net over it. And I saw that and I fell in love. I went, this is where I need to be. Look at that beautiful thing that isn't a rock, but it looks like a rock. And I went, this is where you play dress ups. And that standing in the wings for me is the most magical thing when you can see what's happening and you're getting that adrenaline pumping and you're about to make your entrance to a, a round of applause. No, that never happens. <laughs> but yeah, you're about to go on that thing when you're, so the wings I just think are so magical because it's the half light and it's dark and you're hidden and then you can see the bright light and you know at any moment you're going to step out into that magical space. And I just, I am, there is nowhere I'm more comfortable than on stage because it's been rehearsed. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so is That's there no, I love it. <laughs> is there no business like show business then? Oh, none whatsoever. Um, because look, you know, as I say, I'm an actor, which means I have many jobs because you've got to pay the rent somehow. Um, and, uh, there isn't anything like it. There really isn't. I, I love everything that I do, all of the jobs I do. I make really sure that um, I don't lubricate locks anymore and I don't work in a call centre. These are all, I don't kill chickens. I had a job as a chicken killer. Horrendous, so awful. And I've been really, really lucky for the last 30-odd years to make a living from using my skills. So teaching or educating or running workshops uh, for corporate people or for unions, that's that's how I've, you know, I've, I've literally made over 100 corporate videos. But, you know, it's all acting and you hire all your friends and, you know, it's just it's just great fun. I love that. I, I, you know, I've been so blessed that I've been able to make a living doing what I love. That's That's the dream, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, Jono, have you um, got a show coming up? I do. <laughs> I don't know when it's coming up because uh, lockdown has kind of interfered a little bit with that. Um, so it was going to be October the 22nd at Claire's Kitchen, Claire's pop-up cabaret venue, which I just adore. It's the most wonderful place not just because it's literally across the road from my house and so i can start getting dressed at 6 30 and be there at 6 35. um so and i adore it so i was so surprised and pleased and amazed when i was surprised and amazed when you asked me to be a part of this extraordinary um process and this wonderful thing that you're doing and and Thank you so much and the kudos to you for creating this wonderful um, historical document that you're putting out with this podcast. It's so, so important. So bravo to you. But I was also shocked and amazed when Bev Kennedy approached me and said, would you like to do a cabaret show? And I kind of laughed and went, yeah, why not? And so I, I kind of ran some ideas past her and she was laughing and she went, oh, okay. So yeah, it's called Jonathan Mill, My Life in Dance. 
the early years, the very <laughs> early years. Um, so, and it's it's about some of the stuff that we were talking about today. It's about, uh, I guess, the stuff that nobody really knows. Although it was very scary, I met some audience members once, and they were like, "Oh, we loved you in that." And I went, "Oh, that's so nice." And they went, "You know, we've seen every show you've done since Icarus, which was 1981 or something." And I was like, "Okay." This is a bit scary because <laughs> I've done a lot of shows in different places. And I was like, I'm sure you haven't seen them all. And it turns out they had. Um, so it's really, it's, it's about the early years. It's about me at ballet school. It's about me kind of being a dancer. And anybody who knows me knows that I don't have a natural dancer's body. I'm enormous. I'm six foot five. I'm built like a, you know, a brick shit house. Um, you know, I, but it's so it's a kind of about that journey into dance. I'll touch a little bit on the aortic dissection and carking it and coming back and and that. But the the funniest thing is, ten years ago I had my legs done, and the very first job I had after that was a dancing job, and I didn't even realise it. I was like, until I was about two hours into dancing in this film, I'm like. Oh, my legs are hurting a bit. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. So that it's it'll be fun. There's there's some songs that I sang 40 years ago, which are oh, count again, and 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 some and some contemporary stuff. And you know, I'm not the world's greatest singer, but there'll certainly be plenty of stories, plenty of silly things. And well, we'll stay tuned to the. Um to the Claire's Kitchen website to uh, look out for the yeah, watch the website. Uh, amended amended date when, when things get uh, get better again. Uh, thanks, Jono. Gee, it's good to see you. You always put a smile on my face and uh, it's been lovely to have a, a giggle with you over the last hour. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll have to recreate Cliffs of Sandstone one day. What about that? Cliffs of Sandstone. <laughs> I, st I still haven't got it right. <laughs> John, I never John, got it right. John is alluding to a musical uh, that we that we did mm. nearly twenty years ago, um, playing uh, yes. Rufus and Sam, a couple of knockabout yes. um, convicts. <laughs> convicts. All right, that's Rufus. right, isn't it, Governor? That's right, Governor. See you yes. later. <laughs> See ya. Let's hope Jonathan gets to present his story in cabaret at Claire's Kitchen sooner rather than later. Keep an eye out on their website. I hope you're doing okay, everyone. Times are challenging at present, to say the very least. Look after one another, and why not make it a priority to phone a loved one who you haven't spoken to for a while. Thanks for joining us in this episode, episode 222. There are many more episodes to keep you company. Just visit our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. You never know who you will find of interest. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.